Well, good morning again to Powerline Community Church. We're excited for you to join us this morning. Uh, glad to see everybody here. Uh, we have someone sitting up front here, as you can probably see, and it is the mom of Martha Rose. And I want to tell you why she's up there. Because last Sunday, I gave her a dare. Yes, we, I guess, do that every now and then. And the dare was, since it was last, since last Sunday was Mother's Day, was for her to write a song because the title of the sermon was Unsung Heroes. And now with she sings a song to her mom, will you get it? And so she actually did that. And she wrote an amazing song to her mom that day, accompanied by the ukulele. And so Martha Rose is going to sing that song for her mom, for each of us this morning, okay? So, Martha Rose, awesome. Okay. Mom, you cook so often. Mom, you clean so much. You buy me things so often. Provide the family lot. I'm grateful for all the work you've done. It has really paid off. Shows that you care, and all the love shown is right there. Mom, I love you so much. Mom, I care about you so much. You're so loving, you're so smart, you're so kind. Even when I'm not. You have a servant's heart. You're beautiful on the inside and out. I want you to know that you love and that you care about. I love you, mommy. I love you, mommy. I know we've had some rough years, bad days, and sad ways. But that won't come across how caring you can be. I know we've had some rough years, bad days, and sad ways. But that won't come across how caring you can be. so much you're so loving you're so smart you're so kind even when i'm not you have a servant's heart you're beautiful on the inside and out i want you to know that you love and that you care about i love you mommy i love you mommy i love you mommy i love you mommy Awesome. You're going to have to give me a hug now. Okay, can I get one before you do? Awesome. <laughs> yes, I can. Oh, well. Was that a no-no? Oh, well. Okay. <laughs> I guess I did. Wow. Wow. So we're going to begin with the children's message, but before we do that, can you let me open in prayer for us? Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, whether we're young boys and girls or old people like myself. I ask you, Father, that you would speak to our hearts. I believe that you have a truth for us this morning that you want to challenge us, challenge us with and encourage us with. And I just pray, Father, that as, as we yield our hearts to you, that you would have your way and that you would speak truth and we would walk in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go ahead and dig into Mark chapter 13. 
We live in a day in which, like right now with the COVID-19, there's a lot of scary things going on, all right? We apparently have uh, come across some sort of vaccine, and to what degree it works or not, but as they're proposing the vaccine, we're being told that you would not be able to buy or sell if you you would not be able to buy or sell if you don't have this vaccine. And to know whether you have the vaccine, they want to put a chip in your wrist or wherever it, it is. Now, a lot of people believe that this is a sign of the end times, that this is the mark of the beast, and that you should never get this vaccine. Now, I just want to encourage you, as we encounter things like this in our day, number one, let's realize that every generation since Jesus has believed that they were the last generation. So our generation, as we're looking for signs of the end times, we're always going to come across something. We're always going to feel like we are the last generation. And I want to encourage you that that sense of we could be the last generation is actually a very biblical concept. However, Let's be very careful when we start saying this or that is the mark of the beast or that's the, the, the beast or the antichrist. Let's face it. I mean, if this truly is the mark of the beast, the Bible says that those who have the mark of the beast will be sent to hell. Do you really believe? Now, listen to this. Do you really believe that if you get the vaccine with a chip that you're going to be going to hell? That, that, that is a, an impoverished, powerless gospel if you believe that. Because it's the gospel that changes the heart. See, the issue is not the hand, it's the heart. And so I just want to challenge you as, as we look at Jesus' second coming this morning, let's realize that it's okay to feel as if we're in the last generation before his return, but let's be so careful. When we come to across things like this chip and this vaccine, let's, let's look at something like this separate from it being some sort of mark of the beast, and is something like that even helpful? So that's what I'm going to encourage you to do, but I want us to go ahead. I want us to read this passage, and I believe that Jesus has some very important things that he wants to teach us as we go through this passage that Mark now wraps up about Jesus' second coming. So you're there with me in Mark chapter 13. I'm going to start with verse 24 and read to the end of the chapter. It says, but in those days following that distress. Now, in those days following that distress. And do you remember what that distress was? It was the destruction of Jerusalem and eventually the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So these signs and wonders that I'm going to read to you are signs and wonders that follow the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, this is important. It does not give us a time frame except after the distress of those days and apparently up until the time that Jesus comes back. And so far, he has not come back, and it's been almost 2,000 years. So in those days, following that distress, 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, this is what it says, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now he goes on, verse 32, follow me. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come, whether in the evening or at nighttime, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, I want you to underline that phrase, that word, suddenly. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Watch. Now, most of you in your Bibles have verse, what is it, 26, I believe it is. Uh, excuse me, 24 and 25. You have it indented much as you would find in Proverbs or Psalms. And the reason is because this is poetic. And so Jesus is not literally saying that during the time between the destruction of Jerusalem and his second coming, that stars will fall out of the sky. I mean, if just a star, remember the sun is a star. If it fell out of our sky, we burn up like before it entered the atmosphere. Jesus is obviously using poetic language here, and he's talking about things happening in the heavens that are startling and alarming. Um, Luke, when he is referring to this, he talks about the roaring and the crashing of the waves. So not only in the heavens, but also on the earth. Now, let me bring your attention to, to this. It even says, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is the Greek word dunamis, power, the powers in heaven. Now, nowhere is this word dunamis translated to mean literally heavenly bodies like planets and stars. It refers to powers, either angelic powers, divine powers, or demonic powers. These powers is what Jesus is referring to will be shaken. There's going to be war. There's going to be a spiritual battle. You will not be able to see it. There will be a battle between angels and demons. There will be a battle in the heavenly realms in which, it, though we cannot see it, we will see its manifestation on earth in wars, conflicts, division, catastrophe, whatever it might translate into in reality. This is a spiritual battle as well, not just a physical battle occurrence and alarming things that are happening. And then Jesus says, right there in verse 27, he's 26, excuse me, he says, at that time, so towards the, at the end of the, this time frame in which these types of things, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, at the end, it says this, that the son of man will come in the clouds with power and great glory. 
And I realize that some have supposed that this is just another retelling of the destruction of Jerusalem, that this coming is not the second coming. This coming is simply Jesus coming to bring judgment on Jerusalem. I I would encourage us that what Jesus is referring to here is not that, but it's actually referring to the second coming of, of Christ, okay? And that his whole Uh, challenge then is what are we supposed to do between that time in which the the Jerusalem is destroyed, which in a sense is the end, but it's not the ultimate end, and the ultimate end, which is the second coming, the end of the age. What do we do? How do we occupy our time in that time frame? And as I said, so far, it's been almost 2,000 years. Church, it could be another 1,000 years. It might be this generation. I mean, I would love to see these things that he is talking about, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. I would love to see that in my generation. I would love to see the Muslim nations discovering that Jesus Christ is the Lord and he's the Savior and that he truly did die on a cross and he's God's son and he came to redeem us and rescue us. And it is not the prophet Muhammad that brings the truth, but Jesus alone. I would love to see these nations wake up to this truth. And and you know what? They're There are so many testimonies in the Muslim world that are talking about Christ and how people are becoming Christians and visions and dreams that they're having. And God is visiting the Muslims to call them out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want to see that day. I want to see the gospel spread throughout the 1040 window. It's not today, though. I believe it's happening. I hope it happens in my generation. But what if it doesn't? I still want to follow what Jesus says during that time frame. We all live in that time frame between the destruction of Jerusalem and when Jesus comes again. <coughs> now, <clears throat> I do believe that when he, ref- when he goes on and he, he gives a parable of the fig tree, I know when I was growing up, I, I read a lot of end times books, and it really fascinated me. And I was wondering, wow, could Jesus come back in 1988? And the reason why this book proposed that Jesus would come back in 1988, <clears throat> excuse me, is because Israel, which they believed was this fig tree budding, that's Israel becoming a nation, and maybe you're familiar with that interpretation, that that generation would not pass away until Jesus says he would come back. So that generation being 40 years, what's, 10, what's 1948 plus 40? 1988. So I truly believed, as I was reading this book in the early 1980s, um, I, I, actually the late 70s, only about 10 years or so away, Jesus could come back. I mean, it's possible he could, but is that what Jesus is trying to say here? And I'm, 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 I want us to walk through this. It's going to be a little quick, but I want us to walk through this because we live in a time in which people are constantly pulling out the prophetic charts and looking at signs and wonders and this and that, and you know Israel becoming a nation. And guess what? As 1988 rolled around, guess who didn't come back? Jesus didn't return. We're still here. We are still in this time frame occupying our time And we're going to look at what we're supposed to do in that time. But Jesus hasn't come back. For whatever reason, the Father has chosen this not to be the time. It could be tomorrow. 
But you know what? <clears throat> as, it, it, as Jesus gives us this parable, we know that this is, parable is not given to us to tell us that it's Israel becoming a nation because when he lays it out here, he says, even so, when you see, this is his application, when you see these things happen, you know that it is near. And then as you read on, he says, um, I tell you this, the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. What are these things? We'll go back and, and look at the, uh, the question that the apostles are asking. And remember, we've got Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They're gathered around Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And they're saying, so Jesus, um, remember you talked about these buildings all being destroyed? Now look at their question again in verse 4. Tell us, when will, what does it say? These things happen. They have already told us what these things are. These things that they're asking is when these buildings will be destroyed. When Jesus now talks about these things, he's talking about the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem itself. That's what these things are. So if that's what these things are, what is it? Look at, look at your verse there. When you see these things happening, you know that it is near. It is the second coming of Jesus. These things happening is the destruction of Jerusalem and all the things, the rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, and so on that led up to that time. And there were a lot of things, even unbelievers have recorded historically the drama in the, in, in the last portion of the decade of the, the 60s, leading up to 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. Signs in the heavens, just some really strange things, earthquakes, major earthquakes that went on. So it, it, as we're looking at this, I think Jesus is simply just trying to tell us, look, you guys, it, when the fig tree buds, Luke even says, and all the trees when they bud, that's just simply telling us it's springtime and summer is near. And here's the thing we need to realize, that this concept of soon or near in the Bible or even at the door doesn't mean it's happening tomorrow. It, it, it's, it's words, it's, it's language that in essence says it could happen at any time, so be prepared, okay? Be prepared. Now, I want us to look at four things very quickly here. Jesus gives us a story, and in this story, he says a man goes away. He goes away, and what does he do? It says, number one, he leaves his servants in charge. Now, in the Greek, it literally means that when the man of the house left, that's the master, okay, he gives authority. That's the actual word that's used there. He gives authority to his servants. I want you to know that Jesus has given you authority. How are we to occupy this time between the destruction of Jerusalem and when Jesus comes back, in which he says that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations, to all creatures? What are we to do? Well, first he says, number one, I'm giving you authority. You know, one of the most frustrating things that an employee can experience 
is when he is given a task, a responsibility, without the authority to carry it out. Maybe you've experienced that. Um, if, if you want to think of like a government type of job and you're given a task, a job to do, a, dis, a, a, a responsibility to carry out, with that, you need a certain level of clearance, a level of clearance. If you don't have a high enough level of clearance, then there is certain intel that you do not have access to, facts and such that you don't have access to. And if you need access to them, you don't have high enough clearance, you can't access them. You can't do your job. Jesus, in essence, is saying, I am giving you authority. Now, authority is different than just power. Authority is the rightful or legal use of power. When a policeman comes to your door, and may this never happen, right? He can say, I want to come inside and search your house. And you have the right, the authority to tell him no. Because even though he has a gun holstered to his side, he has the power, he does not have the authority. Even though he has a badge, that badge does not give him the authority to search your house unless he pulls out a piece of paper that's a search warrant. Now the judge that he has asked has given him the authority. So apart from that, he has insufficient authority to carry out the job that he wants to accomplish. The job that Jesus talks about here, we encounter in the very next phrase. He says that he has given his servants, he's put them in charge, that he's given them authority, each with his assigned task. And I'm going to look at that in just a moment, but I want us to realize that Jesus has given us authority and he has given us a task as well. I want you to remember Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples a task. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. But what does he say before that? He says in the, very, in the previous verse, in Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, church. All authority, not some or most, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. You know, whenever I come across the word therefore, I want to know what it's there for, right? And it's there because Jesus, in essence, is saying, I have this authority. I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you some of this authority so that you can carry out your job. I want you to view authority that Jesus is giving you. Remember, he is, you are one of those servants that he has left in charge, that he has given authority to. That authority is like a key. It unlocks, like in the analogy of the, the government job, that authority is like the key that opens the door to the intel needed for you to accomplish your job. 
in a situation like this, Jesus has given us authority so that when we go and proclaim the gospel, we in essence are, as it were, applying a key. And as we proclaim the gospel, it has power and it is able to rescue lost souls. It is not just up to you. It is not just you being able to craft words, you being able to, you know, wow, I hope I say the right thing. It is you simply sharing your testimony, you simply sharing about what Jesus has done to rescue you. And Jesus has said, I am doing it. I am going to do the rest. I am the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. It is not just up to you. But you do need to do this job. I am giving you authority, but I am the one, if you apply that key, I am the one that will rescue the lost souls. I am the one that is going to be changing the heart. I am the one that is going to be making these disciples, but you must go. Now, that can be scary when you're telling these people to go, and you have already told them that when they go, they're going to be persecuted, that when you go, a whole lot of you are going to die. That would be a little bit of a scary proposition. But Jesus, as he says, he has given us this task with the authority. In Ephesians 2.10, it says this. It says, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. Can I just say that when you just step back and understand that God has given you this work, this task, he is sovereign in what he has just done. When you become a Christian, he begins building in you the character of Christ. You are his workmanship. And he is crafting and preparing you through a number of different means. Number one, you were born with a unique personality. That personality, when you start adding character to it, you become a unique person. You now encounter life experiences that are unique to you, and you learn from those life experiences, and all of this, even your jobs, all of this impacts you in a way so that you can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, so that you can go and make disciples in the unique fashion that he has called you. And on top of this, the Bible says that when you give your heart to Christ, when you surrender to him, and he places a spirit in you, isn't this amazing? He gives you spiritual gifts. There is an anointing upon you, upon your personality, the character he's building in you, the life experiences that you have learned and that have helped craft your life. And sometimes as hard as those life experiences are, they are uniquely yours that God is wanting to use and craft and shape so that you are able to accomplish that, what does it say? That assigned task. It is unique. It's not just one little thing that you're going to accomplish in your life. I know there's a lot of confusion. What is my life goal? Well, I tell you what, instead of getting so caught up in, wow, has God called me to be the next president of the United States or some president 20, 30, 40 years down the road? or maybe the owner of the largest company in the world, or the wealthiest man or woman in the world, or the next Billy Graham, or whatever, instead of getting caught up in that, I believe God would say, will you allow me to craft you and shape you and mold you for the tasks that I'm giving you today, this week, this month, this year? 
And let's focus on that. Understand, though, that we have our hearts being yielded to him in prayer. And as we're praying about this call of God on our life, that it is not just us while, you know what? I I hope I'm going to discover the call of God on my life. I hope I'm going to walk in it. And there can actually be a strong element of fear that, wow, you know what? I've sinned and maybe God has withdrawn his grace and and maybe he's changed his call. And maybe, you know what? Maybe he's given up on me. Maybe he's going to say, you know what? You blew it, Mike. And I had a call for you and now I can't. You're not going to be able to walk in that call on your life. And that type of fear can grip us. Can I just tell you that my Bible does not teach anything along those lines? If he has called you, has he not called you, given you authority and a task or tasks, jobs, works, and empowered you for it, does he not in his sovereignty continue to pour out his grace? Spiritual gifts are literally in the Greek gracelets. This isn't about you. It isn't about how skilled you are. It isn't about how how, how godly you are. All of these things are important. But you know what? It is God's grace that he's pouring out in your life. I'm going to encourage you. Don't ever let the devil whisper that lie in your ear. I've just blown it too much. Yeah, maybe he'll forgive me. But the call that was once on my life, he's withdrawn. I'm going to tell you right now, he does not do that. He has called you. Listen to him. Seek him. Pray and trust in his sovereignty. He is crafting you. He is purposing your life. He will not give up on you. So pursue him and allow him to lead you as good works for you, prepared in advance to walk in. Can you trust him for this? As we move on, we discover that not only has he given us authority, not only has he given us a work or a ministry or a job that we begin to walk in throughout the rest of our lives, I don't want you to think that somehow that there is a culmination in this, that somehow, wow, once I became a pastor, I'd finally arrived. No, I haven't finally arrived. I'm somewhere in the beginning stages, honestly. This is, you don't arrive in your calling. You simply walk in it. Its face can change. You know, I worked as a teen leader. I've worked working with young adults. I've worked with married couples. Uh, I, I've, I was a life group leader in a church, and eventually God called me to be a pastor. And, and that pastoring is not something that I've arrived at. This is something that God continues to build. And God has a calling on your life, and that calling is going to look different in different stages in your life. But he's given you authority, sufficient authority, sufficient clearance level. He has given that to you to accomplish every good work that he prepared in advance for you to walk in. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome? God is purposing your life and empowering and giving you that authority like that key, and he's going to open up those doors for you to walk in. Amen? Then he goes on, after he has given us this task, and he, look with me in verse 36. He says, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. So this word that he's about to give them, 
is not just for the apostles. It's not just for the four, Peter, James, John, and, and Andrew. This is for everyone. Are you ready for the word? Here it is. Watch. That's it. Watch. Watch. This word or a variation of this word is actually used eight different times in this chapter. Go back, look there in verse five. It says right there, he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Right there in verse nine, you must be on your guard. In verse 23, it says, so be on your guard. In verse 33, he says, be on guard, be alert. You know, I, I was supposed to, with the children, I was supposed to, Mentioned the passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says, be self-controlled, be alert. Watch out because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants you to be derailed, disillusioned with God and any sense of call on your life. He wants to discourage you. He wants you to get your eyes off of what God has called you to and begin to focus over here or over here and be distracted. He, you may not find him at your front door roaring like a lion, but I tell you what, he's far too sneaky for that. He's going to come to you at your work to distract you. He's going to come to you as you're ministering to distract you and get caught up in things that really are picky and very unimportant. You know, when I was 10 years old, and I love doing this, I played in Little League baseball. And as a 10-year-old, I was first on the minor league, and then I, when I was 11 and 12, I was in the major league. Like, that was so cool. I'm in the majors. Okay, well, not quite. But I was in what they called the minor league, okay? And it, it's, that, that's where you start. And there was a lot of 8, 9, 10, 11-year-olds out there playing various positions. And sure enough, on every team, there was at least one guy that would be assigned to left field or center field or right field. And he would just be waiting with his glove on. And he would get bored pitch after pitch. Maybe there was a hit to the third baseman, throw the guy out at first. And before you know it, you would see the guy. He would be sitting down and he would be picking the flowers. And up north where I'm from, they had beautiful little flowers called buttercups. The, the, the flowers were so tiny and bright yellow, and you could, they'd be start picking the flowers, start picking the buttercups. And before you know it, guess what happened? That's right. The ball would get hit out to them, and it would get past them because they were distracted. And this happens to us as Christians. We can fall asleep, if you will. You know, I remember, and it's a little embarrassing to tell you this story, but when I was a little boy, and I cannot recall how old I was, three, four, five years, six years, I don't know. But we were heading up to the White Mountains that I had mentioned to you earlier. We would vacation in the White Mountains, go hiking, but we would always pit stop in Rhode Island. And the reason why we would do this is because my great aunt lived in Rhode Island and an elderly lady, but she would let us spend the night and in Rhode Island, there, it, Rhode Island is situated around a big bay. And so they, there's seafood everywhere you go. And seafood was amazing. 
the, the, the uh, what do they call it? The clams were the best ever. And so I can remember, I would always look forward to pit stopping in Rhode Island. And yes, of course, visiting with my great aunt, that was important too. But I remember waking up the next day and as we were getting ready, I fell asleep on the couch. Maybe I didn't sleep too well because I was just so excited to eat some of the seafood. I, I don't know. But I fell asleep on the couch there, right? My, my parents had said, Mike, now make sure you got everything ready and, and set. And I had gotten it ready, but then I fell asleep on the couch. And they loaded up the car. And then my mom, everybody hopped in, car loaded. And she would, she would say her typical expression, okay, let's count noses. I don't know why it was noses, but they would count those, and, and okay, who, who's here? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I think everyone's here. Let's go. Well, about 10 minutes later, as she looks in the rearview mirror, guess who she doesn't see? Her five-year-old son, Michael. And she says, Dave. And she turned around and says, Michael is not in the car. Boys, where's Michael? I don't know. Like, my brothers didn't even know. Wow. All that hurt. But when they, they turned the car around, drove 10 minutes back, and there I was crashed out on the couch. I'd fallen asleep. You know, there, there's, there's times that maybe you've done this in which you say, hey, you know what? I'm mom, dad, or hun, I, I'm going to go ahead and lay down for about 15 minutes, right? Yeah, right. Two to three hours later, and you fall asleep taking a nap. You know, many times in the Christian life, it's easy for us to get weary. It's easy for us to become discouraged. It's easy for us to get distracted. I mean, Jesus understands weariness. He understands sorrow. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, actually, not too long um, after this that we're reading, there he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is struggling. He is struggling with sorrow in his heart to the point, he says, of death. Wow. He understands the sorrow. He understands that sorrow and discouragement can become a major distraction. But here's what he chose not to do. He didn't choose to go a stone's throw from Peter, James, and John and say, hey, guys, I'm a little tired. I'm going to take a nap. Actually, it wasn't him who took the nap. That's right. It was Peter, James, and John. And he had said, listen, guys, I'm going to go stone's throw over, but stay alert. Pray. You don't want to fall into temptation. Yet that's exactly what happened. And they had fallen asleep. They were weary, it says, from sorrow. But Jesus was weary as well. But you see, he understood what was on the line here. He understood the implications of that night and that struggle in the garden. And I just want you to just take a step back and realize that we are in this time frame from the destruction of Jerusalem to the time Jesus comes and all kinds of things happening. And the, the, the battle that's being waged in the heavenlies for the souls of men and women that we can't necessarily see that battle. I believe we can feel it. And we can struggle with it at times for our, for our, our own 
well-being and our own focus and our own task and walking in that authority. So Jesus tells him, he says, guys, don't take a nap. Don't fall asleep. You know, when the master comes back, is he going to find his, his servants asleep? Or is he going to find them vigilant, awake? Now, I am sure that when Jesus was in the garden, he was utterly exhausted. But there was too much at stake. You know, it is easy for us to say, you know what, I'm going to take 10. I'm going to just lay down and rest for a little bit. And before you know it, we're out. In the Christian life, you know what? Wow, following Jesus is so hard, I'm going to take a little vacation. I'm going to take a few steps back, and I'm just going to let everybody, you know, you guys go ahead and you take care. You do this and you do that, and you know what? I'm going to be over here, and I'm going to take my little siesta. I'm going to take my little nap. I'm going to take my little break here. I'm just weary. And Jesus understands the need for restoration. He was so patient with his disciples as they fell asleep. But the truth is, when the time came, he says, do not fall into temptation. And that sense of weariness that can cause us to just step back and sit down and just say, you know what, I, 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 need, to, I need to take a break here. I, I, I need to pull away. It's easy for us to fall into temptation. It's easy for us to get distracted. It's easy for us to say, well, this battle is so hard. Maybe not today. And we can stop growing. We can shift into neutral. I'm just going to challenge you. Keep praying. Keep looking. Keep serving. Listen to the Spirit. You know, when I was doing some work at Parks Lincoln of Longwood, I, I honestly got discouraged. I stopped praying for the dealerships. Stopped praying for the people there. There was just work, work, work. And no opportunities to be able to share the gospel with people. And then God opened up a, a door. I began ministering to someone, and within maybe two months, he was gone. But I had an opportunity to share my testimony and help him. He was replaced by another gentleman that didn't seem to be open to the gospel, but he brought another person on, so now it was two. And I began to pray for these two young men. And God opened an opportunity, and I've shared this with you. He, this, the, the friend he brought on was an atheist, and God gave me an opportunity on numerous occasions to simply share with him why atheism cannot work, why God truly is the creator of all things, and it didn't happen by accident. And if he is the creator, then he has a purpose for you being on this earth, and that purpose is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, his son. And the opportunity then to share the gospel. Now, he has moved on. And, and you know what? I, it would be really hard for me if I had missed that opportunity because I was continuing to nap. I want to challenge us. I'm going to close in prayer. But maybe God is tapping you on the shoulder this morning. And he's saying, hey, hey, wake up. And you better not be falling asleep during my sermon, by the way. <laughs> but wake up. 
Look at the fields. They're white and ready for harvest. If you're sitting down in center field waiting for the ball to be hit to you and you start picking the flowers, maybe it's time to get up and stop picking the flowers and get ready because you need to throw that guy out at second base. We need to be alert. We need to be vigilant. Keep praying. Trust in the sovereignty of God that he is moving you forward. He is going to use you. He has good works for you. He's given you authority, church. He's given you a task. Actually, many of them, it's up to us now. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, he's prowling around like a roaring lion. He wants to devour you. Don't let him do it. Be vigilant. Look around. Keep praying. Keep pressing in. He wants to accomplish so much through you. He wants to call you out of where you're at of the malaise. And as you look around, as you press in, use you in such powerful ways. This, this is the call of God in our life until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you have purposefully called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And you have given us authority and a task. And and Father, I pray that our focus would be on you, Jesus. And that as we are seeking after you, as as we are learning to relate with you in in faith, trusting in you and, and asking you to help us every step of the way, as we are connecting with you, God, every day, I am asking you, Lord, use us. Father, I pray that we would not fall asleep, that our focus and our eyes would constantly be fixed on you. You are so good. You are going to accomplish something great in our lives and through us. That's that's just who you are. That is your grace. You have not forsaken us or abandoned us. You have not kicked us to the curb. You are constantly in your grace, calling us to your side to walk with you and to do great things. Father, thank you for your grace. Help us to be watchful. Don't let us be sleeping. Keep our eyes on you. And I ask you, Father, that whether Jesus comes back in our generation or not, our full attention would be always and only focused on you. In Jesus' name I pray.